Now we're moving on, and we come to Psalm 123, and he's coming to Jerusalem now. And this psalm has been called the Eye of Hope. Will you notice it? Under thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou who dwellest in the heavens. Now, he's making it very clear that God is not in a box in Jerusalem, and that the critic has been wrong when he has said that Israel thought God dwelt in a little temple in Jerusalem. He makes it abundantly clear here that he didn't believe that. He says, "...under thee lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heaven." And he's the Creator. And he says, "...behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of a mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God." until he has mercy upon us. I wonder if we look to God like that. You know when you're working for somebody, you watch the clock and you watch the boss, you're very sure you're working when he's watching you. May I say to you, how many of us live as if God is looking at us all the time? Well, he is. Verse 3, "...have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt." They have been despised in the world. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're asking for mercy, and they know that they are sinners and that they need mercy from God. They haven't come to Jerusalem to pat themselves on the back. And he says, "...our soul is exceedingly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud." And they now have come to Jerusalem, the eye of hope. They're looking to the one that dwelleth in the heavens." I wonder if we're looking that direction today. Now, when we come to Psalm 124, it's a historical psalm. It's the eye of the past. The Psalm 123 is the eye of the future, hope. And this one is the eye of the past. It's that of faith, you see. And probably I ought to say just a word about Psalm 124. We're marching, you see, to Jerusalem. And this is actually a historical psalm. If Psalm 123 is the eye of hope, then this is the eye of the past. And this is a historical psalm in that connection. It says, "...if it had not been the Lord who was on our side now, may Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when man rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up alive." when their wrath was kindled against us. In other words, as they look back over their history, it's obvious that God has moved in their lives and made it possible for them to come up to Jerusalem to worship. And they are giving thanks to God for that. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Now, these would be the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of the Jordan River, and the waters of circumstances in which they found themselves many times. So they say in verse 6, "'Blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth.'" God has helped us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. They are worshiping the Creator, you see. A wonderful, wonderful psalm. Now we come here to Psalm and. 25. And they come now in sight of Mount Zion. 
And this is actually an encouragement for the future. And we see them here. And for us, I think we can bring it up to date and say, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1, 6. Now, will you notice this has been called a song actually of security, a wonderful song of security. And we find here now that it also looks toward a time of the restoration of these people. Now, will you notice, "...they who trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever." You see, now the pilgrims have come up from all over that land and beyond that land. And they came up where they saw the mountains of Judea. Then they saw the hills around Jerusalem. And now they actually can see Mount Zion. And they're moving in that direction. Now they are where they can see Jerusalem clearly. Notice verse 2. "...as the mountains are round about Jerusalem..." So the Lord is round about his people from henceforth, even forevermore. This is a very wonderful psalm, the blessed assurance that all who put their trust in Jehovah are like the unmovable, never-changing Mount Zion. And that is the wonderful teaching here. Now we keep moving onward and upward here. And we come in Psalm 126 to sunshine and shadow. And he comes in sight of the heathen, and he wants to be a witness to them, you see. And we find this is one that apparently was inserted after the captivity. That is, the psalm was. It's just been too good to be true that he's now able to return to Jerusalem. Will you listen When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them, the dream. It was like a dream to us. We couldn't believe it. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the nations, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we're glad. You see, now they want to give a testimony to the world. And that is the picture that we have here. This psalm that we're coming to now, Psalm 127, it has been called the Cotter's Saturday Night Psalm. And that probably is as good as any. It's a mighty crescendo. You come here to the crest of the psalm and You've come as high as you can to Mount Zion. You just don't get any higher out of the temple area. But this carries us right into the heavenlies. And here's a psalm that's good for us today. And by the way, this is a psalm that reveals an utter dependence upon God. And this is the psalm that has been used on several occasions. It was used at the inauguration of President Eisenhower. There were two Bibles, and one of them was open at Psalm 127. And the George Washington Bible is open there. And it is one of these great pilgrim psalms. It has a message for us. Listen, except the Lord build a house, 
They labor in vain that build it, except the Lord keep the city. The watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, this psalm is a very wonderful psalm. The last one was a lovely psalm, but so is this one. And uh, those that think because it mentions here, my beloved, that it's Solomon's. But the son of David that's mentioned here is not Solomon. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is a psalm that has five stanzas, as you notice, five verses. And it speaks of the blessing of the Lord. It maketh rich, and he addeth not sorrow with it. Proverbs 10:22 says that. And the Septuagint version does not give Solomon's name at all. Now, you'll notice that three times in these two verses that I read that in vain was used. The word vain. You see, everything is vain, friends, unless God is in it. Everything is dependent on him and on his blessing. This is very important to see. There was an old German proverb that said, everything depends on the blessing of God. I wish today that we looked at it like that. That's the reason it's called the Cotter's Saturday night, a time when, therefore, the Lord Jesus said, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Wonderful psalm. And now we find here the reference to children. You see, when the pilgrim that we are following up to Jerusalem, he brought his family. And his family are there to worship with him. Listen to him. Lo, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And there's his wife and children, and they are there, all of them, to thank God. And verse 4, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of one youth. Happy is the man who hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. They'll defend him. It's wonderful to have a child that'll defend you. And to have quite a little army of them is quite wonderful. The psalmist who wrote this knew nothing about the population explosion at all. Now we come to Psalm 128. And over this psalm, there can be written, Home, sweet home. And Luther called it the marriage song. And you have here a description of happy family life. And you have the invocation of the Lord's blessing here. And here is God's picture of a happy family. And what is its foundation? Well, let's look at the psalm. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his way. What is it that makes a happy family? What's the foundation? Oh, I know that 
There's all kinds of conferences today for the family, the young family, and how they can adopt certain methods and adjust themselves to certain procedures. My friend, you can never have a happy home until there's the fear of the Lord in that home. And a home where they walk day by day in the home in the ways of the Lord. This idea today that psychologically that you are learned to adjust your finances and the wife is to do this, and then when you have a quarrel, why you are to work things out. It's like the man that was asked the question why he had lived so long. Well, he said, I've lived outdoors. I've had an outdoor life. They said, well, we didn't know that. Oh, yes, he said. He said, when I got married, why, my wife and I decided that every time we had a quarrel that I'd go outside. He said, I've had an outdoor life. Well, my friends, may I say to you that that's not the way it's done. There must be the fear of the Lord. And now will you notice verse 2? For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, and happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. It's a place where the husband works, by the way. Verse 3, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. If there is a family altar, here it is, right here. Many of you already know that I do not like the present-day setup of the family altar, where it's a hit-and-miss proposition and where they come in a hurry, read a few verses of Scripture, and then everyone starts out in every direction, and they're like the cowboy that mounted his horse and rode off in every direction. And that's the way of the family altar, I'm afraid, as it's practiced today. Here it is. It's a place where the wife and the children gather about the table. And notice verse 4. It says, Behold, that thus shalt the man be blessed who feareth the Lord. Can't get away from that, unless there's that reverential fear of God, obedience unto Him. The children know whether you love the Lord, whether you're serving Him, whether you're obeying Him, whether He's important in your life. My friend, there's no substitute for that. You can go to all these little conferences all you want to. You never have a happy home until you get rightly related with God. And when you get rightly related with God, then it'll be amazing how many of these other problems that they just fall into place and take care of themselves. Now, we're told, verse 5, "...the Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel." There's a very interesting statement that's been made in reference to this psalm, and I'd like to pass it on to you because it's quite interesting. It says, Before the fall, paradise was man's home. After the fall, the home was man's paradise. And friends, it can be either paradise or the opposite of it. This is a wonderful little psalm here. Now, we come to Psalm 129, and this is a picture of Israel burned but not consumed. What a picture that we have here. 
God has delivered him, and he's in Jerusalem to worship. What a picture. Many a time they afflicted me from my youth, may Israel now say. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Why? Because God has preserved them. And verse 8, "...neither do they who go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord." This is a very wonderful picture, and it's incorporating in not only the home, but into business. This matter of a man's religion, of his right relationship with God. You see that when Boaz came out into the field, his workers were there, and you remember they spoke to him, and he spoke to them. He said, "'Blessed be you,' and they turned right around and blessed him. "'May the Lord bless you.'" You don't find capital and labor talking like that to each other today. Now, in Psalm 130, it's been called a Pauline psalm. And the reason for that is that you have here something I think that's quite wonderful, and that is it's out of the depths. There are several psalms that have called de profundis, out of the depths. And it's a Pauline psalm because of the fact that it speaks of that which has to do with the mercy of God. And it speaks that God has delivered man out of the depths of sin and death. And he's done it not on the basis of man's works. And it was Martin Luther who said this psalm. He said the 32nd, the 51st, and the 130th, and the 143rd are Pauline psalms. And there are psalms that teach us that the forgiveness of sins is vouchsafed to all who believe without having any works of the law to offer. This is a wonderful psalm. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ear be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? I tell you, friends, thank God. He's not going to judge us according to our iniquities. If he did, we're lost. It's by his mercy. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Only in the word of God my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Then when we come to Psalm 131, it's another one of these marvelous psalms, and it says, "'Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty.'" Now, this is a psalm of David, and it's a very important psalm to see because it actually reveals the childlike simplicity and humility of this man David. You remember Michael, Saul's daughter, his wife, despised him because of the way that he went before the tabernacle. He said, I'm going to even be more so. I'm going to humble myself, get down in the dust before my God. And remember, he was the king. What a picture. What a glorious picture. How you and I need to get down before our God today. Very few of us practice that. When's the last time you've been down on all fours before God, my friend? And if you haven't had that exercise, that's the best setting up exercise that you can take today. 
sure help you, help you spiritually, maybe help you physically. Now, Psalm 132 here, it's a rest on the Word of God, again, in the promises of God, and faith is that which becomes all-important. It is, by the way, a messianic psalm, and it's a very wonderful psalm. There's always been a question about its authorship, and it's about David, but I do not believe David wrote the psalm. Although the authorship has been attributed to David, yet there are those of real scholarship that have questioned that. Dalich says it is suited to the mouth of Solomon. And also Peroni says it is perfectly natural that Solomon should write a song for such an occasion, speaking of the earlier efforts made by his father to prepare a habitation for Jehovah. And his belief was that it was composed by King Solomon when the Ark of the Covenant was removed out of the tent of habitation that David had prepared for it when he brought it up to Jerusalem and that it was now being moved in the temple that Solomon had built. Now, that seems to fit in better with this psalm. And actually, the only mention that we have here of the ark is in this psalm here. And that, I think, makes it very important to see. Now, we need to note, however, that the son of David here is not Solomon, but the greater son of David that's coming. Now, with that as a background, let's continue on with these psalms. You see, now that they are there in Jerusalem, and they go back to the fact that they've come to where the mercy seat was, above that ark, the place where they could approach God. Now, will you listen to the psalm as we begin to read it? "'Lord, remember David and all his afflictions.'" How he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I'll not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I'll not give sleep to mine eyes, a slumber to mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now you'll recall back in Second Samuel, the seventh chapter, It was in David's heart to build God a house. Now you can see here that this was the overweening ambition of his life. This was the one great pulsating thought, that he might build a temple for the ark of God. Now we find here, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. This was evidently the song they sang when the ark was moved into the temple that Solomon had built. It was really David's temple, and that the ark here was being moved in. And you remember, the glory of the Lord filled the temple as it had the tabernacle of old. Now, we refer to David again, verse 11, "...the Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it of the fruit of thy body." will I set upon thy throne. Now, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody says, can you be sure? Oh, yes, because his children, they didn't measure up. 
You follow as we have already followed in both Kings and in Chronicles, the line of David, one sinner after another on that throne. Very few of them were good kings, and only five saw revival come to the nation. Now, listen to verse 12. "...if thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony, that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore." But you see, they didn't keep it. And the reason they were put out of that land, and the reason they were sent into Babylonian captivity was simply because of the line of David that had sinned. But that didn't destroy God's covenant that there would come the fruit of his body that he'd set upon his throne. That is what the New Testament is all about when it opens with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the son of David that we're talking about and that the psalmist is talking about. Now listen to verse 13. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Now, this is a city that today this is not fulfilled at all. And I personally wouldn't desire it at all. I walked up to the top of Mount Zion the first time with a friend when we got to the top and saw what it was. He said, I wonder if it is worth walking up here. Well, I told him, I said, I imagine David and the Lord thought so. They see something here we don't see, how it's going to be in the future. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. That's verse 13. That's important. Now, that psalm is a psalm they would sing when they were there, because it was the fact that here was the place they were to meet God And he'd made that very clear. Now you have in this 133rd psalm that we're coming to, we do have a psalm of David. And it's a beautiful gem. It's a rather short one, but it's a beautiful thing. And it has been called a psalm, I think, of brotherhood. It's certainly a psalm of fellowship. You see... Not only did this man come up to Jerusalem as a pilgrim with his family and his children and wife around him, not only the place that God had chosen, but now he's there with friends, and he's having wonderful fellowship. They're not in little cliques or little groups. A great many folk today, they move in a little clique, and the reason is, They'd rather be a big fish in a little pond than be a little fish in a big pond. A lot of folk like that. That partially explains some of the cliques we have in our churches today. Now, here is a wonderful psalm of fellowship, of brotherhood. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We're told to keep the unity of the Spirit today. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. Now, this was at the time that Aaron was anointed high priest. And this speaks 
of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has said, you have here the fragrance of a lovely rose. You see this ointment, this frankincense that was put on the priest that indicated that he was a priest under God. We see that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only king, he is our great high priest. And we see that in Psalm 45 and verse 7 that he's anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And in that day, we read in Ezekiel 39:29, "...neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I have poured out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God." That's the day that's coming, like that ointment that ran down on Aaron. Well, that's the way God will pour out his Spirit. And that's the meaning, by the way, of the prophecy in Joel, where it speaks of a future outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Israel of a coming day. It was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but today we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, put in the body of believers, and Christ is our great high priest. And since that is truth, then we should attempt to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, that is the meaning of this very wonderful psalm, little gem. Now, we come to the last pilgrim psalm. And, may I say, we've arrived. This is it, this 134th psalm. And it's the final song. This is the grand amen. Probably not a sevenfold amen, but a threefold one. Notice it. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now you see the pilgrim. He's come from a ghetto, come from a place where he's under suspicion. He was being criticized, maligned, lied about. His neighborhood wasn't good. Now he's come up to Jerusalem. He's now in the sanctuary, and he's lifting up his hands in the sanctuary, and he's blessing the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. And in turn, he's looking for the blessing of God to be upon his life. This is a great worship psalm, and this is something that should be incorporated today in our worship. May I venture this? And this, of course, is always the curse of being a retired preacher. You can always tell the other fellow what to do, whether you did it yourself or not. And I know something about retired preachers. I used to have many of them in my congregation, and today I happen to be one of them. So you can always tell what's wrong. Maybe we ought not to major in that, and I try not to, but... When the time comes, somebody ought to say something. Let me say this, and I can speak freely. I trust you understand that. I believe that worship today is entirely too formal. Now, I do not believe that we should have fanatical outbreaks in worship. But there are a lot of us that can't seem to express our thoughts. I just have to stand, you know, in a service, just like a dummy, I can't sing. I can't carry a tune. And my wife, she doesn't even want 
me to even try to sing when I'm standing with her in a service. He says, everybody turns and looks at you, and it's not a very pleasant look that they're giving you. Well, frankly, I can't sing. But I just like some time to, as it were, just say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. How wonderful God is. Or God is good. We need a little bit more informality today. Our services are just a little stiff and stilted. Maybe I'm starting some sort of a revolution. I could hope so. This is a wonderful psalm. The psalm that we have now and the other psalms we're coming to are psalms of praise. And there is a similarity in them, and we probably are going to hit some high points now. Praise ye the Lord. That's the way Psalm 135 begins. Here's a hallelujah psalm. And you want to know how it ends? Just like it begins. Praise ye the Lord. Here is a psalm that's in parenthesis, and the parenthesis is a hallelujah at both the beginning and the end. Now, it's a great psalm of praise. It's a call to praise God. It says here, praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord, ye who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord's good. Sing praises unto his name, for it's pleasant. You know, we're not saying it enough today that God is good. Have you ever told anybody that God is good? Oh, I want to get on this radio and just say one thing. God is good. And let it go at that, because that's wonderful. Our God is good, and this is a call to praise Him. And now let me move down to verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of His treasures." It's God that makes the weather. The weatherman doesn't make the weather. The proof of it is, is the times that he misses. He says, tomorrow it's going to be so-and-so. He's not in touch with headquarters. He is in touch with a lot of scientific gadgets, and they can come up every now and then with an educated guess. But God makes the weather. He's the Creator. Not only did he create it, not only does he make the weather, but, friends, he's running this universe as it pleases him. Maybe you don't like it. And if you don't, why don't you move out? Why don't you get you in another universe? Start one of your own. Run it your way. This is his. And if you are not satisfied with it, I suggest that somehow or another that you become reconcile to this universe, and you accept it, and that you accept the Creator, because He's also the Redeemer of man today. And there are a lot of questions that we have to ask, but He hasn't given the answer. And the very interesting thing is, friends, He doesn't have to give the answer. That's disturbing to me, but it just happens to be true. God doesn't have to answer you or me today. He asks us to trust Him. And it should be a life of faith. Now he compares the living God with idols. Verse 15, 
The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. And friends, you're going to be like unto your God. What do you worship? You worship something. It could be gold or silver. It doesn't have to be on an idol. There are a great many people today worshiping gold and silver. That's covetousness. That's modern idolatry. You don't have to hang the gold and silver on a statue or an idol. You can worship many things. What is your God? Whatever your God is, if it's not the living and true God, he may have a mouth, but he can't speak. He may have an ear, but he can't hear you. Only the living God can hear you today. And for that reason, you'll become like your God. And therefore, we ought to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwelleth at Jerusalem. This is a tremendous psalm. Now, in Psalm 136, this is a psalm that has to do with the mercy of God. And did you know the mercy of God is mentioned in every verse? And we are to give thanks to him, not only because he's creator, but because he's rich in mercy. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. He has plenty of it, and he'll never run out of it. His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. And in every verse of this psalm, while you have the mercy of God mentioned, Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, this is a psalm that exalts the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy, Paul said. I want mercy from God, and God is rich in it. Have you called on him? There are folk that have hang-ups. We get letters. I have done this sin. Do you think God will forgive me? Friends, he's rich in mercy. Do you want forgiveness? Do you really want? Well, he'll give it to you. Somebody says, well, I think I'd like something, you know, maybe a new car. Why don't you go ask him for it? And he's rich in mercy. And if you need the car and you should have it, he'd give it to you. Our God's rich in mercy. And that's the way he deals with us. He deals with us according to his mercy. I don't know about you, but I feel like saying hallelujah again. Oh, how wonderful our God is. How wonderful Jesus is. Oh, my friend, learn to fall down before him and worship him. He's worthy. And when you get down in the dust, you know, you have to get down to get up. And he'll lift you up. How wonderful. Now, friends, this psalm that we're coming to is known as an imprecatory psalm. Psalm 137, and this is a psalm that there's been a great deal of criticism about. It is a psalm that the minute that you come to it and read it, well, you find out it is a psalm that makes you sit up and take notice. And to me, it's like riding down the highway, and all of a sudden you come to where three Flares have been thrown down. 
three red lanterns are hanging out that tell you to slow down. Or it's like that cross that used to be at every railroad crossing. Stop, look, and listen. Well, the first flyer here tells us that this is an imprecatory psalm. Or the first flyer says stop. And what we have here is one of the historical psalms. And the very interesting thing is no historical book tells us anything about the history of the children of Israel when they are out of that land. After they came into the land, after they became a nation born in the brickyards of Egypt, the minute they go out of that land, the Bible has no record of them. And that's the reason between the Old and New Testament, you have no record. There's no record of the 70 years captivity. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel tell us something about it, but none of the historical books. And there is a wide hiatus here, a wide gap, a void and a vacuum. And then you come after the Babylonian captivity to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and you pick up the record. Now you can look through a keyhole at their tragic plight, and that's what you have in this psalm here. You see the children of Israel down in Babylon in captivity. This is a bird's-eye view of the hopeless life they lived in captivity. It records their tragic yet tender experience, the bitter hatred and the deep love that was in their heart. You can put your ear to the door of this psalm, and you can hear the sob of their soul. That first is stop. That's the first flare. The second flare, it says, look, stop, look. And verse 4 says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign or strange land? And the question that is raised there has no answer. There are a lot of questions like that. A question asked Mr. Milktoast, you know, are you still beating your wife? You can't answer it. And you can't answer this question here, as we shall see. And then there is the third flare, or the stop, look, now listen. This is one of the imprecatory psalms. There is a prayer, a wish here for Vengeance that has called higher criticism to jump in glee. They just say that this could not be in the Word of God. Listen to it. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Now, you can take the position of higher criticism today and reject this psalm. There are many folk that do that. They say, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, but I just don't like this psalm, so I won't accept it. And that is generally the position of higher criticism. And there are some today who call themselves Bible believers that use that same method. It's an untenable method, by the way. It's an untenable position. You just can't hold to that at all and be logical it's the one view that doesn't make sense at all. It's like the simple fella down in Texas, country boy, he joined with a neighbor of his to buy a cow. And so when they bought this cow, the neighbor said, I tell you what, 
You take the front part of the cow. That's the nicest part. I'll take the back part of the cow. And this poor simple boy, he thought that was a good thing. But it took him about a month to discover he'd made a mistake. He had the end of the cow that you had to feed. And the other fellow was getting the milk at the other end of the cow. And the idea today that you can come to the Word of God and you'll take the part you want and leave the other part. You just can't take that position. Then there are those that say they believe the Bible from cover to cover, but they're rather ignorant of it. One of the criticisms that's been made against fundamentalism, and I'm of the opinion it's been valid in many cases, is that we are anti-intellectual. Well, I've been amazed in my ministry at the ignorance of the Bible among both ministers and laymen. You know, there's more than one way of denying the Word of God. You can merely act as if it's not the Word of God, and the way that you do that is not to study it, not to read it. If this is the Word of God, my friend, it's the most important book that there is in the world. It's more important than the newspaper. It's more important than the TV, and it's more important than the book of the month if it's the Word of God. And we deny it by the very fact that we practically reject it in our daily lives. Well, the other position is we can believe it and attempt to determine the meaning. And with that kind of an introduction, I'd like for us to look now at this very wonderful psalm. Stop, look, listen. Now we have here in the first two verses the central experience of these people. In verses 3 and 4, you have the critical experience. And in verses 5 through 9, the crowning experience of these people. It is believed that this was written. We do not know who the author is. That it was written by one that was down in captivity. One of the captives that had been taken to Babylon. There are others believe that he was an old man that had returned after the edict of Cyrus, and he came back to Jerusalem, and then he looked back upon those 70 bitter years. Well, it was written by someone who was a captive. That is for sure. And who he is, I don't know. But now let's look at the psalm. That's the important thing. It says, "...by the rivers of Babylon..." There we sat down, and that's the location of it. That's the setting of it. These people are by the rivers of Babylon, and they've come all the way from Jerusalem down there. They knew something about it. Well, they were born in the brickyards of Egypt, and now they're down in slavery in Babylon. They came out of the land of Goshen, and they went into the ghettos of Europe. But the question is, what are they doing there? Why are they out of the promised land? Well, let's look at them for a moment. It says, there we sat down, deep dejection, despondent, despair, desolate, in dire desperation. That's their condition. In by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept. Will you notice that? We wept. When we remembered Zion, their woe begone. 
Now, the Psalms were given us songs of praise, and we've been looking at those, songs of joy, but not this one. This one throws in the crying pal, and there's quite a contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. Their home was in Jerusalem, and it was beautiful for situation there in the hill country. Now they're down on the plains of Babylon, and they're by some drainage ditch, by some irrigation ditch, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. And they went back in memory to the fact that they had come from Jerusalem. Now will you notice, and they had no heart for singing. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. They're not going to be singing anymore. Now, will you notice what we have here? Here is their critical experience. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, they had already hanged their harps upon the willow trees, the instruments of praise. You know, there are a lot of Christians today that put their harps on the willow trees. No praise to God today at all. Now, when they were down there, my, they became very interesting spectacle to the people of Babylon because they heard about them. And so one of the tour agencies, I guess the Tanner Gray Lines, ran a bus out there to let people go out and see them because that temple in Jerusalem had become world famous. Tourists all over the world and over the years, they came to Jerusalem. They said, you ought to be there at a feast time. And they sang psalms. They had an orchestra. And they had about a 100,000 in the choir. My, I tell you, they were the singers. David had been the sweet singer of Israel. Have you ever noticed the number of musicians that the Jews have given to the world? Well, the Babylonians saw their harps on the willows. And with a snare, they said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They taunted and ridiculed them, and they said, Heist us a tune. And all they had ever heard were the Babylonian beetles. Well, all they knew was rock and roll or smoke gets in your eyes or something like that. But these people now can't sing. They can't sing. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And with a sob of the soul, they said, we've lost our song, and you mock us. We can't sing. And that's the question you can't answer. I don't know the answer to it. How are you going to sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And that's the reason that a lot of folk today have lost their song. A lot of Christians today, well, there are those that have a natural tendency of being pessimistic. The psychologist tells you there's some folk that are filled with melancholy. It's the opposite from sanguine. And they're not happy at all. There's a plastic surgeon here in Southern California that advertised, I'll give you a permanent smile. <laughs> he can't do it, my friends. He may twist your face around till it looks like you're smiling, but you're not. And then there are a lot of Christians that have had discouragements and disappointments, and life has buffeted them in the portals and arrows of outraged fortune. 
And I saw a lady sitting in the service one day, one of the most unhappy faces I'd ever seen. Heard a story after that, and I must say that I thought, my, how terrible it is to sit in church with a face that is as sad as that. But she had reason for it when I heard her story. There are a lot of folk like that, and then there are Christians like David that their sin was in their lives. And he's prayed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But somebody says the Lord Jesus was called a man of sorrows. Yes, but he's the one that hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He didn't have any of his own. It was sin that put them by the rivers of Babylon. That was the reason that they were there. That was their condition. They had sinned, and because they had sinned, they are down by the rivers of Babylon, and that is the reason. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, said, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We've sinned against thee. And he was the one that pointed out that it was their sin that had brought them into that situation. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Now will you notice, that brings us to the crowning experience. If I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. This is the ray of hope. They now pledge an allegiance to God. This is their repentance. They'll obey him now. They want to be back in the will of God This is a confession that they make. Listen to them here. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, notice now what they're saying here. Here is a cry for justice. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation Thereof, You see, the Edomites got in the cheering section and cheered the Babylons and encouraged them to destroy Jerusalem. And now they are praying, O God, remember it. And then, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall it be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall it be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stone." Now, this is the law of retribution. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And the Lord Jesus said, For all they that take the sword will perish with it. Now, you must understand here the mind of the Israelite. He went back to Jerusalem. He saw that brutal Babylonian soldier come in and take his baby. And he took that little tender thing and dashed its head against a stone, ripped up the stomachs of the women, and my, how horrible it was. And that's a matter of record. And Cyrus did the same thing when he took Babylon. Whether you believe it or like it or not, friends, what you sow, you're going to reap. And that's all that the psalmist is asking take place here. Now, the fact of the matter is that somebody's going to say, and we hear that today, oh, people are more civilized today, you know. We're not like the God of the Old Testament. We today are very wonderful. 
people and we're civilized. We don't believe in capital punishment and we believe in being nice, sweet people. Do we, my friend, did you know that we're the folk who dropped an atom bomb that blotted out two cities? Did you know that we carried on a campaign of destroying an enemy? And don't misunderstand me, I think it was essential. But we're not as civilized as we think we are. And that bombing campaign paid no attention to women and children. So before you read this psalm and find fault with the God of the Bible, my friends, search your own heart. Did you approve of the bombing there? And there are a great many folk today that would begin this type of thing today. They'd drop an atom bomb at just the wink of an eye. It would not take much to cause that. May I say that this is a great psalm? This will make you sit up and take notice. This will make you search your own heart. This is a psalm, my friend, that reveals that you and I live in a big, bad world. And men are not nearly as civilized as they think they are. That men are evil in their hearts. And the Lord Jesus told us what comes out of their heart. And it wasn't a good thing in the lot. And Jeremiah says, the heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And only God has a remedy for this kind of heart trouble today. This is a great psalm, and we've spent a lot of time with it. Now, when we come to Psalm 138, the psalm that, of course, follows this one, this is another great psalm, by the way. And we saw the harps hanging on the willow trees in the last psalm. Well, in this psalm, they're in the hands now of the godly, and the harps are being used for the praise and worship of Jehovah again. The remnant have now come back to God. Now, this is a psalm of David, and because the temple is mentioned here as a reference to it, there are those that feel that he could not have written it. Well, the word temple could be tabernacle just as easily, and apparently it is that kind of a psalm that is speaking of the tabernacle and of the days of David. We're told here, and it's in the inspired text, that it is a psalm of David. And this is a wonderful psalm of praise. It's rather in contrast to the psalm that precedes it, Psalm 137. There we saw Israel in Babylonian captivity down by the irrigation canals in Babylon. They put their harps on a willow tree and they wept when they remembered Zion. But here is a wonderful prophetic hymn of praise. And it looks into the future. It looks to the time when the remnant will take up their harps again and sing praise unto God. Now, this is a psalm of David, which he wrote. And it begins like this, and I'm reading this translation that's before me. I will give thanks unto thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praises unto thee. Now, I will give thanks unto thee with my whole heart. One of the things that impressed me in my last visit to Jerusalem was the fact that the nation Israel 
as they have come to the wailing wall again, you see them standing there, many of them, with a little book going through a ritual, some of them actually butting their heads against the wall, some of them wailing, going through a lip service that I'm sure touches the heart of many of them. But a great deal that you see there is just like ritualistic Christianity today, or probably I should call it churchianity, and it's nothing in the world but lip service. A great deal of our service is that. But after these people have been through the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, and they've been delivered out of it, I tell you, there'll be no longer lip service. It's going to be heart worship. I'll give thanks unto thee with my whole heart. We need to examine our hearts and see just how we're worshiping God. Is it really with our whole heart? One of the things impressed me about Horatius Bonar was that he said that he went to God to repent of the coldness and indifference in his life and the sin in his life. And then he says, I went back to God and repented of my repentance. It was just a lip service, you see. And he was repentant of that. I think that some of us on Monday morning ought to go to God in prayer and ask him to forgive us for going to church on Sunday. Lord, forgive me that I went to church yesterday. I went to church and all I did was I sang the hymns lustily, but my heart wasn't in it. I prayed, but it was just merely a formality. I didn't enter into it, and as I listened to the sermon, the Word of God, it had no effect on me. I criticized the preacher, and I criticized everything that was there, but I never criticized myself. God forgive me for going to church like that. May I say to you, that would be a good thing for many of us. Now, there's something else that's interesting here. He says, "...before the gods." Well, I sing praises unto thee. Now, Luther and Calvin, they explained here that the gods were angels of God. I don't think it's quite that. And others think that actually what he's talking about are the idol gods of the nations. And he certainly could be talking about that. But anything that you would have in place of God in your life, or what is between you and the living and true God could actually be atheism. Whatever it is, is your God. A man said to me, says, I don't believe there's a God. Well, I said, that's interesting. When you say you don't believe that there is a God, what you are really saying that there is a possibility there is a God, but you just don't believe in him at all to you. God is out there, but you can't believe in him. May I say to you, I think that's the position of the average so-called atheist. He's really an agnostic. We have seen this word before, and we saw it, you will recall, back in Psalm 82, 6. And there it referred to the judges, those that are in the place of God down here. 
the representatives of God. I've always been mindful of the fact that as a minister and a preacher and teacher of the Word of God, that I'm to give the Word of God out, and I'm not responsible to you, but I am responsible to God. I have to answer to Him because of the fact that people will look to you. And if you don't make the gospel clear, who is? And there's one thing. I look back upon my ministry, I see much of failure. I have many regrets. I'll be very frank with you. But there's one thing that when I look back, I can say this, and I can look in the face of God and say this, Lord, I preached your word the best I could. I did it the best I could. And you know, that's a great comfort because you do stand in the place of God. And judges that have a man that come before them, their life is in the balance. Now you can escape the responsibility as many judges are doing today and say, oh, I'm civilized and will not execute that man. But my friend, you're standing in the place of God and he's going to call you to account someday. And maybe you're going to find out you weren't nearly as civilized as you thought you were. May I say to you that I do not know exactly what David meant here, but he says, before the gods will I sing praise under thee, and it could mean you see several things. Now he says, I'll worship before thy holy temple, and it could be the tabernacle, and confess thy name. And when he says here, for thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name, someone has rendered it like this, and probably a much better translation. Thou hast magnified thy saying according to all thy name. In other words, God's word is back of what he says. God's word is as good as he is because he's back of his word. And that is the thing that you'll recall that you find elsewhere in the Scripture. The psalmist has been saying, I'll confess thy name for thy loving kindness." and for thy truth's sake. And thou hast magnified thy saying in accordance with thy name. In other words, he's fulfilled it in such a manner as to bring out all that the name implies. That's a very wonderful statement. Now, as we drop down here to verse 6, you'll notice he says, For Jehovah is high and regardeth the humble." but the proud he knoweth afar off. Jehovah is high. He is over all, yet he'll condescend to the lowly, and he regardeth the humble. What a wonderful picture this is, and there's so much said in the Word of God about the fact that God regards the humble. Humility is really something that God regards. And proud man today just doesn't seem to be an expert at displaying humility. James, that practical writer in James 4, 6 said, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. And we're told in Scripture, humble yourself therefore under the awful hand of God. This is something as you can see that God takes note of and something that God recognizes. There's a great deal in the Word of God that is said about this matter of humility. 
over in the 131st Psalm, you remember, this is the thing that David said, Jehovah, my heart is not haughty, mine eyes are not lofty. David took an humble place. And you find in Psalm 138, 6 that we've had here, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. And then we have this in Isaiah 57:15, And I'm reading, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that's of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And then again in Isaiah 66, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. And then Peter in 1 Peter 5, 5 said, Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And again in 1 Peter 3, 4, he says, A meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. All of these very wonderful scriptures reveal the fact how God regards humility. And we have that mentioned here in this psalm. Now it closes on this note, verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. And that's the Old Testament way of saying Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ.